You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. On today's show, soldiers on standby and a government ready to implement contingency plans. Is the UK on course for a no deal Brexit? A halt to fighting between pro government troops and rebel forces in the Yemeni city of Hodeida after a ceasefire kicks in. But how long can it last? China says it has no plans to dominate the world. But 40 years after the passing of major economic reforms, President Xi Jinping warns that China will not be told what to do by anyone. My guests, Carol Walker and James Rogers, will be discussing these stories. And a press freedom watchdog says unscrupulous politicians and social media platforms are responsible for unprecedented levels of violence against journalists in 2018. That's all to come here on Midori House with me. Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the political commentator Carol Walker and James Rogers. James is head of international journalism studies at London's City University. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, A question for you. Is the Brexit saga coming to an end? Prime Minister Theresa May has ordered government departments to implement contingency plans if Britain leaves the EU without a deal. In the meantime, 3,500 military personnel have been put on standby to handle any disruption. Mrs. May says these measures do not prove that a hard Brexit is inevitable, and the withdrawal deal she negotiated with the EU, which MPs will vote on next month, is still the country's best option. Meanwhile, the opposition Labour Party Has been accused of cowardice after it tabled a vote of no confidence in Mrs. May rather than her government, which might have triggered the process for a general election. Confused? You're not alone. Carol, you're not confused because this is your meat. You're one of the few people I know who absolutely adores talking about Brexit. But before we actually go into the ins and outs of it, so to speak, I mean, what are these contingency plans? We're we talking about the allocation of money and sending out leaflets telling people to beware, get ready for the end of March? Yeah, absolutely, Juliet. I think I'm probably one of the last people left standing who still finds this absolutely fascinating. I know so many people are just exasperated by how long the saga is. Continuing. And in answer to your opening question, is this saga nearly over? Well, I'm afraid not by a very, very long way.、Um, what the government has done today is to put into action various plans to tear the country. In case we do leave the European Union without a deal, this involves sending out tens of thousands of leaflets to businesses telling them what they need to do, especially if they export to the European Union.、Um, it is about releasing some funds.、Um, the Defence Secretary has said he's got troops that are ready to help if they are needed. And I think many of those who've been involved in this process would say, well, look, it's about time too, because time is running down.、Uh, Theresa May has now said that she's not going to even have the vote on the deal, which may, in which she may well be defeated, until January the 14th. So that's another month gone. And there is every likelihood at that point that her deal is defeated and there is no. Clear agreement on what the country should do instead. And just worth remembering that because we've signed Article 50, that means that the default position is that 
UK leaves the European Union on March the 29th, there would have to be an act of Parliament to overturn that. Because mm, it can be revoked, it has to be stressed. Well, but not necessarily with the, with the consent of the remaining players in the EU. Well, technically, the European Union Court has said that it could be revoked, it could be overturned. But politically and practically, there is no way that that could be overturned unless there had been a further vote uh, amongst the people of the United Kingdom. And that is right, another that, whole issue. That is another whole issue. It, it is one of the, the, the options which, I, which I'd like to look at in the time available to us. But, but James, in terms of the, the, the contingency plans, if I were a business, if I were running a very large business, frankly, I would be seriously brassed off that Christmas is a handful of days away, the negotiations have been going on for two years, and me and my like have been saying to the government, look, you need to tell us what to do, and you're telling us however many days, less than 100 days away, before we're due to leave uh, the the European Union, that these are the steps you need to take to safeguard your business and make it efficient in a post-Brexit world. That's right. On one hand, they're trying to put a brave face on it and say, look, we're putting all this money into the preparations, look, we're making all these preparations. But on the other hand, you know, as Carol's been saying, there's absolutely no certainty over what's going to happen. One would hope, one would hope, and as someone who's lived in this country for the last two and a half years and longer, that common sense will prevail at some point. But that is completely against to the contrary of what has happened over the last couple of years. Anybody hoping for common sense to prevail, for some sort of sensible agreement to be reached, um, has so far been disappointed. And Hopefully, the fact that there's so little time left may focus minds, but it seems pretty clear there is no consensus here within the cabinet, within the government, within parliament, or indeed within the country. Uh, And on that basis, the European Union is still waiting to find out what the UK actually wants, and the UK can't give a unified answer to that. So this uncertainty persists, and you and your business, Juliet, I think is probably looking (laughs) extremely worried. Extremely worried, yes. But you see, the other thing which um, you have to ask yourself about this is that there's been a lot of game-playing with the, with the Brexit movers maneuvers, and you have to ask yourself whether something similar is afoot with the with the latest development. Because is Mrs May ratcheting things up? Because yes, she has to. But is she also sending out a message to her MPs saying, "Look, if you don't support me on this deal, then this is what's going to have to happen. These contingency plans will have to kick in. We'll have to have the troops on standby. All of these different scenarios would happen if we leave without a deal. So would you rather that or perhaps go for the slightly more saner uh, alternative, the deal that I've negotiated with the EU that I've put to you that you have to vote on in January? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt that the Prime Minister is saying to MPs on all parties, look, look at the alternatives. You may not like my deal, but look what's going to happen if we don't have a deal. Um, Now, of course, those who want a clean break with the European Union are saying this is simply Project Fear Mark II, because, of course, during the referendum campaign, uh, the Remain uh, leaders of that campaign launched this huge uh, exercise to warn of the dire economic consequences if Britain voted to leave the European Union. Uh, Many of those have simply not materialised. But, of course, part of the reason they haven't materialised is we haven't left yet. And um, there is now, I think, quite a bit of concern amongst businesses who say, look, 
the clock is ticking down. We don't know what the arrangements are going to be if we need to export or input ingredients. We don't know what the arrangements are going to be for bringing staff in uh, and are asking for the kind of clarity that the government simply cannot give. And yes, there is a strong suspicion that Theresa May is trying to leave it so late that and, and make people so concerned about the alternatives that they will hold their noses and, and, and vote for her deal even though many people suspect that it really would be the worst of all worlds yeah. because it would leave us so closely tied in to many of the rules and regulations of the EU even after Brexit. Mm. Yeah, and I, th- I think Mrs May's critics would also remind her that on a number of occasions, particularly in the first year after the referendum when she was beginning the negotiation process, she said on a new m- number of occasions, no deal is better than mm. a bad deal. Now, nobody really seems... The deal that's on the table now... Please, it's pretty much nobody. I mean, we can see that's reflected. Uh, opinion polls would strongly suggest that. But also, if you are a lever, it doesn't leave enough. And if you're a remainer, it's nothing like as good as it was before. So in that sense, those people who took Mrs May at her word when she said no deal is better than a bad deal says, well, no, she's just trying to save her career now. But I think the fact that the extent to which she takes this seriously is very strongly reflected in the fact that she postponed the vote. Because if she thought she had a decent chance of winning that last week, mm. she wouldn't have done Although that. Although there's very no guarantee that she will win even when it goes to the MPs in January. None whatsoever, but at least, you know, she hasn't lost yet, I suppose, from her point of view. But but let's take a look at at the opposition because there are those who perhaps want some sort of a decent resolution for this or perhaps don't want to leave Europe at all who may say, well, okay, then let's turn to the Labour Party, the largest opposition group in the House of Commons. And then, of course, you have Jeremy Corbyn doing something which seemed a little bit odd in terms of putting this vote of of no confidence in Mrs May rather than in the government itself. I mean, Carol, did he play a bad hand when he tabled that or was he just was it just more of a symbolic gesture because realistically it wasn't going to trigger a general election if it was a vote of no gov- vote of no confidence in the government because the Tories would have rallied around the leader. Well, look, Juliet, you would think when you've got a government that is riven by the divisions, the infighting, a third of the party voting to try and get rid of the Prime Minister, no one can agree what's happening in Brexit, uh, that the opposition would be streets ahead in the polls, instead of which uh, many of the recent polls have shown that they're still behind the Conservatives. And part of that is because the Labour Party has its own divisions. Um, the party can't even decide on its tactics in on how to try to pin down the government, let alone what its overall strategy or its approach to Brexit is. And, and what we saw this week was really quite extraordinary. Theresa May has already survived a vote of no confidence in her own party. Um, There was a strong expectation this week that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, would put down a motion of no confidence in the overall government and hope that some of those rebels in the Conservative Party might help to bring down their own government. Instead of which, he did that and delayed, and at the end of the day yesterday, he put down a, a rather meaningless motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister which the government said that there was no opposition time left in Parliament, so they weren't going to even allow him to put it. So I think to say that um, he didn't exactly fire the most crucial shot at the most crucial moment would be uh, understating yes, the case Yes, that's been there. very, very generous. But, uh, but I, I touched on this earlier, and this was, this was the options that were available to the government. I mean, look, time is running out, and it seems that one of the most talked-about options at the moment, James, is this idea of a people's vote. But Mrs May has said, look, that ain't going to happen. But then having said that... She 
she it won't be the first or the last time that she said something isn't going to occur and surprise surprise it does yeah the, the, i think the big question over that julia is this i mean is there's no guarantee that it would deliver a more decisive result than the last time round i mean uh, you know Absolutely. this country this country is not used to referendums it's not they're not a very frequent use of uh, of of government and, and i would remind people that in those countries which do use them a lot uh, then there're normally certain thresholds which have to be passed normally either two thirds of the people who turn out or 50% of the registered electorate on neither of those would this have passed but that's not the way we do things in this country so i don't and there's nothing i mean as far as one can trust opinion polls these days but there's nothing to suggest there has been a substantial shift yes there may have been a, a shift uh, and a lot of polls suggest there might be a slight majority for uh, remain now but that's not not enough for the government to think oh my goodness you know we really are facing uh, a swell of popular opposition here so and there's no guarantee i don't think um, that this would that this would really solve the problem. A narrow victory for Leave the same way, I suppose that might settle the question. A narrow victory for Remain, those strong Leavers would say, well, what is it now? Best of three, like a penalty <laughs> shootout or something. <laughs> so it is, it, that's the state, I'm afraid, to which British politics oh, what if, has if come. If it works in the World Cup, it can work in politics, surely. But the last word to you, Carol, very briefly before we move on to our next subject. Well, I think James is right. There is a great danger that you have another referendum, which is fought brutally which opens up all those divisions which might not resolve anything you might get a narrow leave result but you've still got to work out how you're going to leave the EU and you've got to have a government that's prepared to put through the legislation to actually have a referendum it has to be the mm. question has to be checked by the electoral commission that takes 10 weeks you've then got to allow uh, time for a referendum campaign you've got to get the legislation through parliament an argument about what the question is is it may's deal no deal do you have have uh, a, a people's vote uh, it may not resolve anything and it would inevitably mean you would have to delay the date of brexit even if you could get the eu to agree to that and then we all woke up and realized it was a very bad dream <laughs> moving on now to an entirely different subject in fact fighting between pro government forces and houthi rebels in the yemeni city of hudaydah has stopped after a un brokered ceasefire kicked in overnight sporadic gunfire could be heard barely hours after the truce took effect although the situation has so far remained calm now hudaydah and its port are crucial for the distribution of aid to yemen's beleaguered population since fighting broke out in 2014 60,000 people have died as many as 85,000 children may have starved to death and 22 million people are in need of help now though the ceasefire has been welcomed by the international community the worry is over how long it can last a legitimate concern james but on the other hand the truce was negotiated a week after the peace talks opened in <coughs> sweden so that shows commitment determination to bring the situation under control and potentially bodes well for its longevity. Well let's hope so. I mean I think it's the most positive thing that's happened there for for some years. I mean of course the big difficulty in Yemen is the internationalization of the conflict. It was bad enough when it was simply a civil war, um but now there are many outside parties who have stakes in it and of course and you'll recall that one of the reasons that the impetus was given um to to this new round of attempts to to solve it, uh, it is not just the, the looming humanitarian crisis but also the fact that um traditional allies and supporters uh, of Saudi Arabia um started to become rather concerned about their relationship with the country uh in the aftermath of the the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and so i think that there is this sort of political will there which has been absent so far there's clearly no obvious solution to this and there are some very big international um stakes at, at play in the war
war there. But hopefully, um, I mean, the best that one can hope for is that fewer the, the, the number of people dying and being killed starts mm. to decrease. And, and so hopefully, in that sense, at least, even if we're not necessarily any closer to a longer term stability solution, then this is at least a, a significant step in the mm. right direction. And let's pick up on that point of uh, the Saudi Arabian Prince Mohammed bin Salman, because he is seen as the principal architect of this war, Carol. He's now trying to rehabilitate his international reputation after the fallout from the Khashoggi affair. So do you feel that perhaps the chance of achieving some sort of a peace settlement, a long-term peace settlement in Yemen, is a thing which is really incentivising him, apart from the obvious cost of the war in terms of money and human lives? Yes, the Saudis are key players in this, as James has mentioned there. They essentially came in on the side of the deposed president um, because they feared that the Houthi rebels were being backed by Iran and that this would allow Iran to extend its global reach. So the Saudis have been huge players in all of this. Um, The leadership is now under big pressure because of the murder of Kamal Khajoji. And it is interesting that even the United States president, who's not known for wanting to get engaged in international matters, has been putting some pressure on the Saudis to ask them to to rein back a bit in this. the, The important thing here is that at least there does seem to be an internationally agreed ceasefire, which is a step in the right direction. Now, the problem is that neither sides are actually pulling back from their mm. positions. There does not seem to be any sign at the moment of a long-term resolution to the crisis. But the immediate overriding need is to get supplies into the country, in particular through that uh, key port of Hudeda, where huge amounts of the country's supplies need to travel. Um, you know, this is a conflict in which uh, more than 6,500 civilians have been killed, many of them killed, incidentally, by Saudi airstrikes. Um, It's thought that 85,000 children have already died Mm. of malnutrition, and there are literally millions more at risk of starvation. So anything that can alleviate that blockade, that can Mm. get UN troops in on on the ground... That is going to be critically important. Sure. And even when we do manage to get those troops in on the ground, James, there is this phase withdrawal. It's not going to happen overnight. They have set a timeline for things to occur. But again, there is the danger that something can go wrong when you confront the practicalities on the ground. Yeah. And because of you know the international pressures that we've been talking about, it's, it's, one has to consider what um, victory or satisfactory settlement would look like uh, in Tehran or Riyadh. I, I think it is true to say, and I was in, I was in Saudi Arabia last year, I think it is it's true to say that um, people, the Saudis don't have a clear sort of end in sight and would probably welcome a way out of this conflict. It's uh, it's not delivering them, you know, they don't have clear strategic aims there. So if there's any way of, of reducing the presence there, not least because of the cost of it in, in, in blood and treasure, then I think they would probably welcome that. But it is... Um, it is also true to say it's difficult to see what a settlement would look like that would satisfy not only mm. the sides warring within, but their international sponsors. Sure, and given the, the level of mistrust internally and mm. internationally. You're listening to Midori House, here with me, Juliet Foster, Carol Walker and James Rogers. Coming up next, 40 years since major economic reforms were introduced to the country, China says that it's not interested in dominating the world. 
What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Now, still with me are Carol Walker and James Rogers. China's President Xi Jinping says his country isn't interested in world domination and that it won't be told what to do by anyone. Well, he made the remarks in a speech marking 40 years since the country introduced major economic reforms that turned it into a financial powerhouse, lifting millions of people out of poverty. Well, China has displaced Japan as the world's second largest, biggest, second biggest economy. And yet, despite its successes, concerns do remain over its human rights record and the government's ongoing crackdown on political dissent. James, let's take a look at that speech that Xi Jinping made. I mean, do you think that he had Donald Trump in mind with this uh, reference to economic domination? Presumably, yes. <laughs> uh, presumably. I, I think, um, yes, one doesn't need a particularly trenchant international affairs analyst to spot that one, I don't think. I mean, because, of course, China is involved um, in a trade war with the United States, and one of the biggest questions in international relations today is whether the rise of China uh, is inevitably going to lead to a military or a wider confrontation with the United States. So I think here President Xi was sort of, you know, setting out uh, what China's ambitions are, the limits and the extents of them. Um, and But also making it very clear that China is not going to be told what to do. And I, and I think perhaps in some parts of its history, China rather does feel that it was told what to do um, mm. by, by colonial powers and others. And, and it, it's remarkable to think, you know, for those of us who grew up in the, in the, in the second half of the last century and saw the end of the Cold War and so on, just to see the presence of China on the international stage. There's no reason... Uh, why China should not be given the size and particularly of its population and now of its economy but China is a presence in a way that it wasn't you know for those of us who were growing up in, mm. in the 80s and 90s it, it's just much much bigger on the world stage and I think that is what President Xi sure. is trying to reflect here. And certainly displacing Japan as the world's second biggest economy that, that really took everybody by surprise but Carol what I find interesting is that he talked about economic freedom and yet one of the criticisms that's often levelled against China is that it's, it's not as open to foreign businesses, perhaps, as it should be, that they don't get as big a slice of the pie as they would like that's been, te- that's been te- you know, just waved in front of them. I mean, it says something, doesn't it, about the confidence of the leader when he has to reassure people that he's actually not seeking world domination. I mean, hard to imagine Theresa May coming out with a phrase like that just at the moment. <laughs> um, but this was a pretty defiant speech by Xi Jinping. I mean, he was insisting that it was the centralised and united leadership of his party that was delivering this, far from signalling that the country was prepared to open up, to be more liberal, uh, to be more accepting of dissent and, for example, to the minorities in the Mm, country. He seemed to be suggesting that the economic success that the country is experiencing is all down to his tight grip on the party and the country, um, which he said... Uh, were delivering epic achievements that have moved heaven and earth. Uh, the language here, it was quite extraordinary. But I think what is, and I think what is interesting is that he didn't specifically mention Donald Trump or that trade war with the United States. Um, but clearly, 
there were also no indications that he's prepared to back down, mm. that there is any sign of a solution, a longer-term solution to the trade war. There's a truce at the moment. But, I th- but it seems as though the markets were looking for a much stronger signal of from uh, the Chinese leader of how he was going to approach this in future. Instead of which, it seemed to be, I'm going to tighten my grip here. Don't think I'm going to start relinquishing power uh, just because Donald Trump doesn't like it. Mm. Which also means as well in the advancement of power continuing. It's a strategic build-up in um, some parts of the world, notably with money in parts of Africa and Asia, James, very briefly. Yes, that's right. I mean, they're financing a lot of projects and I think financing is the word, not paying for them, but Mm. lending the finance and then when those cases where the countries or the, the, the people who are building them can't pay back, then the Chinese take ownership of Client them. Client so, states. Yeah, precisely. Finally, a leading press freedom watchdog claims that, and I quote, unscrupulous politicians and social media platforms are responsible for unprecedented levels of violence against journalists. Paris-based Reporters Without Borders says that 2018 has been one of the worst years for journalists on record, with 80 killed, 348 held in prison and 60 being held hostage. Now, the group says the figures have increased on the year and that half of the journalists killed were deliberately targeted. James, I want to throw this to you Mm. first and then we'll bat it amongst us because, look, you could argue that it's unsurprising given the political shift that we've seen in Europe, in the United States, in other parts of the world, where journalists are often described as enemies of the people Mm. and in that dictatorial climate it makes them legitimate targets that's right i was just thinking about this on the way to the studio and thinking if you consider that within you know the last just in the last couple of years the last 12 months you know you could very very critical um attacks on journalism by the leaders of china russia and the united states the biggest and most powerful countries uh in the world and i I think and 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 here in the uk too you know the over the the very bitter political debate we've had over brexit the media has often uh, been blamed for that by anybody who doesn't like to hear what they've got to say. And at the other end, um, now Carol and I have both reported on armed conflict in our time starting in the 1990s after the end of the, the Cold War. And I think one can almost trace it back that far, but I think there's been a very serious escalation uh, in the last few years. And these casualty figures are truly worrying because I think those journalists who report on armed conflict accept the risks that they're taking. But mm. the people who are being killed now, a lot of them are because they are investigating corruption, sure. they're investigating political and financial scandals. Or, or they're just doing their job. They That's could just right. be reporting on something which is very low level but they are seen not as a things which target. is necessarily putting them in harm's way mm. and i think the more and unfortunately the, the, the united nations can pass all the resolutions it's likes the more that the people who carry out these killings get away with it then the more unfortunately people attempt to mm. pursue them in the future and, and carol the other point which was made in this report is that social media platforms are responsible now when we talk about social media platforms we look at them in the context of enabling the dissemination of so-called fake news so isn't this also part of it, actually citing journalists as the problem? That's part of that fake news syndrome. And surely these platforms should be made accountable for the lives that they're endangering because of that role. I think they do play a crucial role in this big change in the climate surrounding the work that journalists do. As James was mentioning, he and I both travelled in war zones decades back when there was still a certain amount of respect for what journalists were doing. You might find yourself in the line of fire, but it was rare for journalists to be specifically targeted in the way that they are now. And I think this is happening on two levels. We've seen on social media whipped up, yes, by uh, the sort of language that Donald Trump uses at his rallies, Mm. openly uh, whipping up the crowd into a 
frenzy pointing to some of the journalists mm. well, some that of them he have actually been like. penned off at his, his, his conferences. Mm. Indeed. And, and there is that, but there is also this very worrying, specific targeting of journalists who are exposing corruption and uh, and malpractice. Uh, we've seen it a lot in Latin America, mm. but it's been happening in Europe as well. Gibraltar. We have seen, mm. we have seen, for example, the Bulgarian TV journalist Victoria Maranova. Um, she was found. Uh, the investigation sh- showed she'd mm. been raped, beaten, mm. left strangled. In the park. She had just carried out a report about two investigative journalists. There was the journalist in uh, Malta, Daphne Caruana Galicia. She uh, was a, a very mm. powerful anti-corruption journalist apparently targeted by a car bomb and this is a very very worrying trend in the time available james look we have to ask ourselves if the governments are are very are are complacent basically Mm. because look we're unsurprised when violence occurs in countries like syria in countries like mexico for example and afghanistan but isn't there a danger that that very complacency could perhaps extend that violence into other countries, even if it isn't as brutal as car bombs, etc. It's the fact that people get beaten up and basically cowed into leaving this profession. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I just uh, to sort of put it in a bit more of a global context, a colleague of mine at City University just published a book on global journalism. And in the introduction to that, he points out that um, there are 87% of the world's surface where there's not considered to be a free press, okay? So there's a lot of people who are used to not getting reliable information the way that we would consider it. However, I think that what's really, really worrying, and and Carol's pointed to this in the, the murders of journalists in the European Union in the last 12 months, democracies no longer seem to be protecting journalists or really valuing what they do. And when that starts to go, and one can say that people are very cynical about politicians and don't trust them these days, I think that it's beyond dispute that they do manage to create the atmosphere for public discourse. So criticising journalists, I think, is contributing to the violence against Mm. them. And and Carol, the final point, in spite of the violence, and these, these statistics are very, very depressing, it doesn't put people off. There are still people who are determined to ply their trade regardless, and others who aren't part of the business, but they still feel that they have to get in there, they have to ride the danger to expose a misdeed. Thank goodness there are still hugely courageous journalists and aspiring journalists who are prepared to go down that course because a free press a free press is a crucial part of our democracy. Mm, society is weak without it. Well that brings us to the end of today's show. Carol Walker and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Carleto Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Manuso. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next than at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bach and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200.